Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. And some Tory MPs, they accuse the SNP of an anti-English sentiment, don't oh, they? Good grief. And that visibly annoys you, doesn't it, when they say it to you in the House? I would say it's more irritating than anything else, and... I would never permit any existence of anti-English sentiment of any way, shape or form. I'm Christopher Hope, Chopper to my pals, The Telegraph's associate editor, and this is Chopper's Politics. Now, while Westminster's weighing up whether a Tory leadership election is looming, north of the border there's a murmurings of another huge political event maybe as soon as late next year. A possible second referendum on Scottish independence. So with that in mind, I'm joined today by the Westminster leader of the SNP, Ian Blackford, at my favourite table at the Red Lion pub here in the heart of Westminster. And so without further ado, on today's podcast menu, independence, what it's really like working with a Tory government if you're an SNP MP leader, Tory claims of anti-English sentiment amongst nationalists, and of course, bring your own booze work parties. Ian Blackford, welcome to Chopper Politics. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. And this is, I have to say, slightly (laughs) unusual surroundings for a podcast. But uh... well, not if you listen to this podcast enough. (laughs) I've given you your present. It's your mug. What did it say on? I I I went on. You can read. Went on Chopper's politics, and all I got was this lousy mug. Yes, this is officially a bring your own mug podcast. Excellent. I look forward to drinking my coffee out of it. Exactly, exactly. And um, yeah, I'm not sure what Boris Johnson might think. You've been just in the House of Commons calling for him to resign. Yeah, it's a frequent thing, isn't it for for you now? I have done it over the last few weeks, um, and I didn't do it until very recently with everything that's 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 gone on. And look, it's not something you do lightly. You shouldn't do it lightly. You should do it for a reason. I have to say, I think he's the wrong man to be Prime Minister at the wrong time. And I do, without going too far, I do worry about where our politics are. I worry about the way that he behaves. Of course, he's a political opponent and I would be robust in dealing with anyone that was Prime Minister when I'm leader of the the third party. But there are elements of the behaviour of the Prime Minister that... Sad to say, I find unacceptable uh, to the extent I even worry uh, about our democracy because I think a lot of what's going on, there is no other way of, of putting it, is Trumpian. You go back over the course of the last couple of years, you think about the prorogation of Parliament. I remember very clearly the events all around that. That was different times. That was Brexit, national crisis, need to be, un- need to be unblocked. It helped to unblock it with a moment of 
craziness, you know? I understand that he had a job that he wanted to do. Of course, I get that. But the way that he behaved about prorogation is, in a sense, I think, uh, an insight into his character and personality and how he behaves because he believes that the rules are not for him. He believes that he can do what he pleases. And really, it was quite extraordinary for him to send three ministers up to see the Queen at Balmoral and shut Parliament down and, of course, the mm. Supreme Court give its judgment. And then you link into that everything that's gone on with the refurbishment of the mm. of the Downing Street flat. You can think of everything that's gone on with the COVID contracts and that, of course, has been up in court. There's a pattern of behaviour that, to me, suggests that the Prime Minister thinks he's above the law. And I don't want to make too much... Well, normal rules don't apply. I mean, that, normal that, rules don't I apply. I think that's more, more of an accurate assumption. So, yeah, but of course, the job of Keir Starmer and the Labour Party ourselves and the SNP is to oppose the government. However, having said that, there are times where normal protocols have got to take place. You've got to be able to work together, where it's in, if I use the phrase, the national interest, things like national security. And do you work with the government on those levels? I do. I think it's actually important. Because you're on the Privy Council, so... You... Yes, so I would argue that the support that I gave to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister over things like Salisbury, over Scripal, for example... But there's an important but, Christopher, and that is that at that point, we would be brought in to see the National Security Advisor. We'd be briefed under Privy Council terms. There was a relationship that we had with Number 10 through the uh, the Chief of Staff of the Prime Minister. There was a courtesy that was extended to you, and you would meet with the Prime Minister and other senior government ministers as and when you needed to do. It is impossible to do that with the present incumbent in Number 10. Now, there are government ministers that extend normal courtesies, Secretary of State of Defence is one I would certainly happy. That's Ben Wallace. Ben Wallace, he, he behaves in a, in a very dignified way and makes sure that ourselves, Keir Starmer for the Labour Party, that we get... So he gives you notice because you live a long way away from Westminster. Well, there's, there's, it can't take a day to get down here. So, well, that's an important for example, point. So, for example, I'll come back to that. But also, you know, when you're discussing things like Afghanistan, Ukraine and so on, it's really important that we are briefed on what's going on and so we can play the role that's expected of us to hold the government to account. But when you're talking about national security where you can that you work together and it's it's almost impossible to do that with number 10 as things stand and there's only one person that's responsible for that and that is the prime minister okay the practicalities of distance i live in the isle of sky uh, it's about a nine-hour journey to get down to the house of commons and i'm i, I was grateful that when Theresa May was Prime Minister, that they always made sure if she was going to make a statement on a Monday, I would have to leave on a Sunday mm. and they would give me... But you're not being told orders. now by the executive, not, the number 10 aren't no, telling we you. have no relationship with number 10. Again, the Whip's office, what's often referred to as usual channels, they make sure more often closer to the event that we know what's happening. And, and I would say that Mark Spencer, is, is the, the government chief whip, is someone that recognises his responsibilities. But there is a real issue about the way that this Prime Minister behaves. I'd almost go as far as to say that he sees us as the enemy, not just us, but the Labour Party. I don't think he has, I don't think, I know he doesn't have a good relationship with the devolved administrations. I'd extend that to the overseas territories as well. It's a way of working that, frankly, is, is not So there's no shared national interest, which is what no. always unites all the parties in Parliament, doesn't it, normally? As you say, over Salisbury and other areas, there's a degree of national interest and shared endeavour. There are times you have to do that, and I think Salisbury is a very good example. This was an attack on citizens by a foreign state in the shores of the United Kingdom. You have a responsibility to work together with the government. You have to make sure that you're delivering the right response to, in this case, Russia. And I make no apology for saying that I stood shoulder to shoulder with the Prime Minister. That's what's expected of me. You want to try and rediscover, do you, that way of working together? But I guess... It has to be the way. I mean, well, I guess because you're... 
you are the Scottish National Party. Your yeah. point is independence at the end of the day. And, and the Tories might view, view you as somebody who wants to rip apart Parliament, so why should we talk to you properly? Of course I want Scotland to be independent, but there has to be mutual respect. I, I am sent here as a Member of Parliament, along with my colleagues, to represent our constituents' interests in Westminster. I want us to be away from this place. I want us to be independent. But I would never disrespect the responsibilities I have as an MP for everyone that sends me down from Roskai and Lochaber uh, to represent them. We're here to do a job. Mm. And we're in a position that we're the third party. We're represented on all the select committees in the House of Commons. We are we participate early in every debate. So we will take these responsibilities seriously because we have a job to scrutinise the government, standing up for our constituents, and when I can, to make the case as to why Scotland should be an independent country. If Boris Johnson was a Trumpite... For example, he'd probably sack Sue Gray tomorrow, wouldn't he? That's what Trump would do. He'd find a new standards commissioner who would give him an easier ride. I, I think mean, he's, that's what I, Trump I, would do. I think he's, and Boris I think, won't do that. I for think example. he's. I think he's boxed into this one now. He's already lost one parliamentary investigator, so I think he has to go through with this. I have to say, and I have no more of a crystal ball than anyone else. I think this has been a defining week. I don't think that was a good statement from him in terms of trying to justify being at the party the 20th of May. And I suspect what will ultimately happen, that this will be the end of Boris Johnson's premiership. I don't believe they... It's a moment of authority, finally. When almost Conservative MPs woke up to his weaknesses, you might think. Yeah, and I would appeal to Conservative MPs to to look at themselves, to look at their own moral fibre, to look at their backbone and say, is this the man that you want to represent you as your leader? Is this the man that's prepared to come along to the House of Commons and put his hand up and say, yes, he was a, a party leader? He's not, he's not accepting a that work as event, such. A work it event. was a work event. I mean, it's extraordinary. This is a work uh, event, Ian. Yeah, We're in a bring, work event now. Bring, well, that's entirely different. <laughs> uh, I mean, I bring your own booze party. I mean, it's just not acceptable. And I think Conservative MPs will make their own judgment on that. That is up to them. But I suspect these days are numbered. With Boris Johnson, you want a weak Boris Johnson because it helps you. It's almost like a recruiting tool for the SNP north of the border. If you look at the way Douglas Ross attacks Boris Johnson, which looks strange for a lot of English Tories, but apparently that, I think that's the only way to be relevant in Scotland is to attack his boss. Well, he is unpopular. The but that must help suggests you. That. Yeah, but here's the but. I want Scotland to become independent and I want people to vote for independence because they believe that Scotland will be a better place as an independent country. And it's about that debate about what kind of country we want to live in. Boris Johnson happens to be the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. I would make the point that no Conservative Prime Minister is going to act in the best interests of the people of Scotland. And it is about that future. How can we change Scotland? How can we deal with the challenges that we face, the poverty that exists? That, that isn't fair, is it? Because they are helping the people of Scotland. They're looking after defence, they're looking after the taxation, they're, they're feeding money, lots of more money goes per head north compared to in Scotland than compared to England. And there's all sorts of ways that the UK government is looking after the Scots, right? If you take that to its fullest extent, so we will send taxation down to Westminster and we'll get some of that. Get more back. Get more back. If I I look back, there's there's a wonderful book, Scotland's Population, written by an academic at Aberdeen University, that shows every decade since 1850 that we've lost relative population share. Now, I'm not blaming anybody for the, the, the circumstances that have caused that to happen. But I would simply make the point that within the union, we have underachieved our economic potential. I don't want Scotland to suffer from depopulation the way that we have done in many decades. I want Scotland to be a destination. I want people to want to come and live and work in Scotland. But why can't the Tories want that from London? Why is that dream, which is a brilliant dream, only allowed to you as the SNP? Why can't it be shared by the Tories? Because we are not a political priority. Now, let, let, me, let me just give you one example. 
we had the announcement a few weeks ago on carbon capture and storage, which is going ahead. Two proposals that are going ahead in England. Fine, and I and I and I wish both these projects every success. But we were not given the opportunity to develop carbon capture and storage in the northeast of Scotland. And, and, and actually, I make the point that we were promised this prior to the 2014 referendum. That's twice that we've lost out on the potential, in fact, the promises that were given in, in terms of this. This is crucial for us uh, in order to get to net zero, the targets that the Scottish government has to get to net zero in 2045. And let's be honest, we've got a very significant challenge in moving away from fossil fuels and all the jobs and the economic value added that are currently generated from that industry. You're talking about, in Scotland, 71,000 jobs today from the oil and gas industry. Main North Sea. And the North Sea. Carbon capture and storage is a crucial element of, of that transition. It would generate 15,000 jobs on an annual basis. We have got a dedicated, uh, highly skilled workforce in the North Sea. This is one of the routes that we have to create that potential for Scotland to deliver us on its potential, get to that net zero target. But it's not just about that. I mean, in, in a more holistic view, uh, there's the opportunities that we have in green energy. And you'll have heard me banging on in the Commons about tidal marine. It's a massive opportunity for us off our shores. And I would point to the report written by the Royal Society that talked about generating 11.5 gigawatts of, of electricity, yeah. about 15% of our current demand in, in the UK. And I asked the government to support the industry so we can get to the extent that we've got the supply chain, we've got the jobs, that we're delivering the potential out of this. And I specifically asked for a figure of £71 million because that's the glide path it takes you to that target that I talked about. Now, UK government's given 20 million a year, and I'm grateful for that. It's something, mm. but it's not enough for us to unlock that potential. Mm. So, independent of Scotland, examples. we could focus entirely on, on that idea, could it? And uh, expense of other things. To- I want to make sure that we're doing the things that allow us to to deliver our economic potential. If I look at the economic growth of Scotland, then quite frankly, the delivery at the moment is not good enough. If you look at small countries in Europe, and I would look to the works of David Skilling, who's a New Zealander, lives in The Hague. And he's done a lot of work on small countries. And it is the case, whether you look at small countries in Europe, in Americas, in Asia, that small countries tend to deliver better outcomes than, than the larger countries do. There's significant academic analysis. This is the, the arc of prosperity. which I'm I... not using that phrase because I think when you look at those countries, that every country plays to its own strengths. And it's it's about how you make sure that you take advantage of the that opportunities. Like Norway and Iceland and other countries. They're, they're, they're all different. You can talk about Ireland, you can talk about the Baltics and so on as well. But you need to make sure that you play to our strengths. You need to make sure that we can unleash that potential. We've got fantastic academic excellence in many of our universities in Scotland. And we need to make sure that we deliver that entrepreneurialism. A lot of good things that are happening in the industrial front with uh, with Strathclyde, for example, the investment that Boeing have made in Scotland is one example of that. So we need to deliver a stronger economy. We need to show people that we can change the economic outlook, but we do that for a purpose. And these arguments, and they are good arguments, are the ones that were used by the Brexiteers, weren't they, to, to free themselves from the European Union. Do you find it strange that you now have a Brexit government with arguing the Remain argument towards you and you're fighting the Brexit cause against the London government? Is that... A, a, Kind of strange situation to be in. Well, no, I don't particularly accept that. And I I would acknowledge in the context of the UK, not in Scotland, because the Remain argument won quite substantially. I I, I will accept that the what I would call the simplicity of the Brexit message, the slogan on a side of a bus, was was successful. I'm not talking about doing that. And I think it's really interesting. When you look at what's happened in Scotland over the course of the last 10 years, I would argue that apart from a few months around the 2014 referendum, much of the debate has been about the process of independence. It's not been about a discussion about what type of country. And I want to make sure that we actually give people the confidence, the optimism, that we can deliver Mm. that stronger economy. 
But the reason I want to deliver that stronger economy is because I want to improve people's life chances. I'm absolutely outraged that we have so many people living in poverty. We've got the cost of living crisis, which is coming along just now. So many people in fuel poverty. I want to make sure that we've got, we create the architecture that delivers higher investment in the economy, that delivers higher productivity, that improves wages, that gives people that hope that we can do. That we and can the government's response to that is is this Hendy report, isn't it? That's part of it. Connectivity increasing, links between Scotland and England through big roads or whatever it might be. They want to strengthen that infrastructure. I, 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 would, I would welcome investment in infrastructure that improves our connectivity. Why wouldn't you do that? But you need to look at that as part of the solution as to what we need to be delivering. So and why put not, a border then in England and Scotland? If you support connectivity, why put a border? Well, who's between? putting a border up? Well, wouldn't there be a border if, you, if Scotland well, became independent? You know, if you talk about Scotland becoming independent and all of a sudden we're back in the single market and all the opportunities that come from that. But would you, would you join now? Would you join the EU? I mean, yes. And you can get in despite the veto of Spain, for example. What veto of Spain? Wouldn't Spain veto it? Or there's no. You, you're pretty certain. Yeah. Why I, are you so sure? Look, of course, I think in some respects that you, you refer back to the the debate that took place pre 2014. But of course, at that point, the UK was a member, and of course, member states defend the interests of all member states. That's entirely different. And we need to make sure that we're engaging with with every member state of the European Union. Mm. But the process towards Scottish independence will be done on a democratic basis. It'll be done on the basis of a mandate given to the Scottish Parliament to then agree with the United Kingdom government about holding a referendum, which is done on a constitutional basis. And uh, I, I can say to you, with all the conversations that we have with European governments, with ambassadors, that the hand of friendship has been extended to us. Now, okay, we have to go through a process, but the principle, the idea of Scotland becoming a member of the of a European Union is one that I believe has has support right throughout the community. What guarantees have you, have you had on that from Brussels? I'm not arguing that we've had any guarantees mm. because, of course, you have to get to the point that there is a proposition. The Scottish Government has offices in, in Brussels and, and other parts of the, the European Union. I and my colleagues meet with EU ambassadors and EU governments on a relatively regular basis. Mm. I think there is mutual self-interest in an in independent Scotland being part of the, the European Surrounding, Union. Surrounding uh, England with, uh, and Wales. with uh... yeah, England is our closest neighbour, and if I may say so, our closest friends as well. Absolutely. Um, we, we have a free travel area between the United Kingdom and the island of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, we have to uh, yeah. negotiate these things. But let's do that on the basis of what we're offering. You know, we, we were talking about energy earlier on. One of the things that an independent Scotland would offer the rest of the United Kingdom is, is access to, to green energy. I want to make sure that that's one of the cornerstones of our economic future and, and the ability, mm -hmm. if I could put it cheekily, to make sure that we keep the lights on in England. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. <laughs> Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. 
My colleagues uh, in Scotland, uh, the Telegraph team up there, they tell me there's been a weakening in Nicola Sturgeon's language about this commitment to a referendum by autumn 2023. She'll now do everything in her power to make it happen rather than guarantee it will happen. Is that because it's looking less likely now? No, that's not the case. So we fought an election last May. I think demonstrably we won that election. Maybe not all your listeners will be aware that there's a dual process in Scotland. You have 73 seats first past the force. You have 56 list seats. We won 62 of the 73 Mm. seats, and this is extraordinary. There is no party in the UK has had such a mandate over the course of the last 50 years. We've increased our share of the vote. We've increased our numbers of MSPs, first past the post in every election that we've been in government. Mm. And I think it's about Westminster recognising the right of the Parliament through the votes that have been given to not just ourselves but the Greens, that there's an independence majority and that independence referendum should happen. But Ian Blackford, what if they say no? What if the UK government, as they say they'll say no, they'll say, sorry, we're not going to help fund or even agree to this this referendum. Then you have a, a, an opinion poll amongst your own supporters. Yeah, I mean, but, but that's, if I may say so, that's a ludicrous position because in the end, everyone has to respect democracy and you have to respect the right of the people of Scotland to vote in a government that has a mandate to deliver an independence referendum. Look, I, I know we have to win the hearts and minds. I absolutely accept that. And this will come down to the desire of people in Scotland as to whether or not they want the country to be independent. And one of the things I've signalled that as we come through COVID, as we all hope we will, or we come into the spring of this year, that the opportunity is for us to get out and campaign and have that discussion about mm. what type of country. And my message to our political opponents, to the Conservatives, to Labour, is come and discuss Scotland's future with us. I, I want to be able to have public meetings. Mm. I think they offered in- it in May, didn't they? Didn't, I think, uh, didn't the UK government offer some kind of big moment to get obviously- Sit down and talk about the union. Well, yeah, but we need to. Yeah, but now we have to have a conversation with those in villages and towns throughout Scotland. And I'm quite happy to go to towns and villages up and down the country with the likes of Douglas Ross, Andrew Bowie, Ian Murray, and others. And let's actually treat the electorate with respect, and let's have that discussion about how we change Scotland for the better. I will listen to the ideas they have. Mm. I'm very firmly of the view that it's in the best interest of the people of Scotland to become independent. So let's have that respectful debate. So questions like, would the pound be kept in Scotland, for example, which is what I think holds the campaigning below the waterline in 2014, you would see that as a process. That's kind of a a detail of the the overall vision you're, you're painting. I mean, the guarantee that I can give to everybody in Scotland that the pound that they have in their wallet today will be the pound that they'll have in their wallet the day after independence. It won't change. Despite the Bank of England may say we're not going to be the central bank to Scotland after any independence vote. Yeah, but the point is that we don't need the authority of the Bank of England to do that. You can continue to use the pound or, or any other currency that you choose to do so. But the key thing is that if you're a pensioner in Scotland or a potential pensioner, your pension will be safe. We will continue to use the same currency. We're entitled to do so. What is important, it comes back to what I was saying earlier, is that we've got the fiscal powers to be able to make sure that we can drive growth in the Scottish economy. At the end of the day, a currency is a bill of exchange. I'm not arguing it's not important. Of course it's important. But let's change the things that we can change that can make a difference to people's lives. We don't have to change the currency that people are buying cups of coffee and mm-hmm. pubs such as this or elsewhere. <laughs> that remains the same. You mentioned COVID there. There's a feeling in England, certainly, that whatever Boris Johnson announces, Nicholas Surgeon tries to do something different just almost for the sake of it. Now, is that brutally unfair? Because, and indeed, has some of the the restrictions recently in Scotland been shown to be needless? No, 
It's not. And now why is let's, that? let's respect the difficult decisions that anybody yeah. in, in government has to make, whether it's in London, whether it's in Edinburgh, Cardiff, Belfast or, or elsewhere. And, of course, we have responsibilities for health in Scotland and other areas. And the First Minister has had to interpret the advice that she has given by her scientific advisors. And I think, on balance, we have made the right decisions at the right time. I think... Even recently? I mean, Well, that... let's come on to that. But, but before I do so, I think everyone's tried to make the right decisions based on, on the advice they have. Mm-hmm. And I know, because of the relationship I have with the First Minister, how much work she's put into this, the toll that this has taken on, any, on anybody, because none of us have, have, have lived through anything like this before. And actually, you know, when you ask the question about what's happened recently, and you think about the period leading into Christmas when you could see the mm. dramatic... Growth. And the forecasts were terrifying. And the, the forecasts were, were terrifying. We had some information, but we didn't have the full picture. We knew that the success of the vaccine programme meant that people were unlikely to be uh, as seriously ill as, as could have been the case 18 months earlier. But the key determinant in all of this was how do we protect the NHS? How do we make sure that the NHS doesn't become overwhelmed with physical people being admitted to hospital? And then within all of that, how do we make sure that we're not overwhelming intensive care beds? These were key factors. I think it's good news that in the end, although it's still a serious illness, that we haven't had the kind of impact with Omicron that we've had with other variants. And it's right that on the basis of what we know today that the First Minister has revoked some of the restrictions that are there. I'm delighted that we can go back to football matches, for example. Mm. But the decisions that were taken before Christmas were the right decisions that were taken to protect public health. On the forecast available at the time. Were there, yeah. And there's more of a risk taken in England. They backed data, not forecast, didn't they? And they proved to be right. Yeah, and uh, what what I would say, whether you're looking at Scotland or England, then uh, there are public inquiries that are coming yes, and all of, of this will be looked at. Of and of course, mistakes have been made out of all of this. But, but, the, but the harsh yes. reality is there have been 150,000 deaths over the course of the last of the last couple of years. And mm, that's a tragedy. It's the, the, actually the human scale of that tragedy. And I think the things we've talked about earlier on about what's happening with the Prime Minister and when you're talking about the, the, the parties that were taking place in Downing Street in, in the spring of mm. 2020, it's brought back to the public the kind of things they were going through when they were watching loved ones that were dying in hospital, were in care homes, and weren't able to visit them. The pain, the suffering, mm. the sacrifices that people have gone through. And politicians have had to make judgments to keep people safe based on the information which was available to them at the time. And it's not black and white. It's not black and white. politics isn't black and white. No, politics never is black and white. There are enormous shades of grey. Do you mind being called a humble crofter by the PM? Because you're, you're a former, you're basically a, a, good, a good Tory background there. Former, oh, for goodness used to work in Deutsche sake. Bank, you're yeah, a banker. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. I mean, <laughs> develop yourself, you know. They, 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 they see you as someone who lost his way, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, let's take that head on. I mean, I grew up in, in Edinburgh. I actually spent my first eight years in a, in a council house estate in Edinburgh mm-hmm. in, in Muirhouse. And I consider myself fortunate that I had a career in finance. I was a financial analyst. I was, at the time I worked in the city, I was what was then, which was the norm, I was a country analyst. I had the opportunity to to look at a broad range of mm-hmm. Dutch companies. I'd been a fund manager before that as well. I'd been an investor relations director of companies. And I was blessed by having the opportunity to perform the roles that I did. And I hope get an understanding of how the world works. Now, I've, I've moved on from that. 
I've lived in the Isle of Skye for the last 20 odd years. And yeah, I live in a croft. We have sheep. <laughs> I'm part of the community on the island. I mean, the Prime Minister will refer to me how he, how he wants to refer to me. Yeah. And there's some Tory MPs, I've heard they accuse the SNP of an anti English sentiment, don't oh, good they? Grief. And that yeah. it annoy, annoys you, it visibly annoys you, doesn't it, when they say it to you in the House? I would say it's more irritating than anything mm. else. And by the way, I would never permit any existence of anti-English sentiment of any way, shape or form, whether it comes from anybody within the SNP or whether it comes from society in Scotland in a, in a wider sense. Let me make it absolutely crystal clear, zero tolerance on it, there is absolutely no place for it. The thing I'd say about the SNP is that the SNP is a civic nationalist party and if I take you to my own area in the Isle of Skye and we have a thriving SNP branch in the island, an extremely high percentage of the people that are members of the SNP were not born in Scotland. They might be from England, they might be from other places, but it's about their future. They've chosen to live in Scotland. They're part of Scotland's story, they're part of Scotland's future. There is no place for Mm. anti-Englishness of any kind. One of the things I've tried to do over the course of the last few years over the Brexit debate is to make the point that people are welcome in Scotland and I want Scotland to be a success. We need people to come and come and visit, join. Not just visit, come yeah. and come and live with us yeah. north of the border as well. They're 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 welcome. That's so leveling find, up for you there. That's leveling up. That's, that's what a, Michael that's a, that's a, called leveling well, up. That's a real leveling up. But no, there is no place for 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 anti no. sentiment of any kind whatsoever. It should always be called out. Maybe that takes us on to a broader point as well, and that is where our public discourse is, mm. and I suppose particularly where it is in social media. It's not a nice place. It's dreadful. And the abuse people get, the abuse women MPs get in particular, is a responsibility on all of us to call this out. We've got to get to a better place. I mean, I made, I made the remarks earlier about having debates about Scotland's future with our political opponents. It's really important that we do that. Mm. People like Andrew Bowie, people like Ian Murray, they have a different political position than I do. It doesn't mean I disrespect them. And I want those that don't agree with independence to come on that journey with us. And I want us mm. to be able to pull Scotland together. So just finally, uh, Ian Blackford, you mentioned there what forecasts of, of you know on, on COVID and the rest of it. What's your forecast for Scotland's future? Do you think that it can be independent by twenty thirty? I mean, where are you if you're you know you're in, in the in the bath in the croft in in the other sky? And you think you're imagining how the future might play out? When when do you think you might? Finally, can Scotland be called a country in its own right, not part of the UK? Well, of course, we have a mandate for a referendum, and I want that referendum to be enacted. And I want, on the basis of a, an informed... That's next year. That's yeah, next. Uh, I, I want that to take place. I believe that can take place, and we can we can deliver the thing that I suppose I've fought for for, for a number of decades. I joined the SNP way back in the 1970s. It's Gosh. been a long journey. I can remember the excitement that there was in 2014 around mm. the referendum. I don't know how much time you spent in Scotland. No, I was over two weeks covering it. I mean, not a long time, but it, yeah, but it was know, real. But, but, well, it was real. It was real. You know, one of the things that, that, that does offend me, when people sort of talk about referendums being divisive and all the rest of it, actually, that wasn't really the case in 2014. Mm. Okay, I spent most of my time in the Highlands and in, in Sky and La Carche. I actually did 70 public meetings in Sky and La Carche uh, around just about every township. And it was fantastic to see the engagement, particularly with young people. Referendums don't have to be divisive. You need to make sure that there's space for people to be able to express themselves without fear or favour. And I hope that we have that engaging debate about our future. And when will that goal happen? When do, when do you? Well, if we can get the legislation through the Scottish Parliament and get agreement on the on the referendum, as we did pre-2014 with the Edinburgh Agreement, there's no reason why that can't take place in 2023.
and independence shortly after. You have to, to negotiate independence, and that'll take a certain amount of time. But it certainly will be looking forward to the time that we can offer people the opportunities of an independent Scotland being back in the European Union. Well, Ian Blackford, leader in Westminster of the SNP, thank you for joining us today on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Thank you. Ian Blackford there. Now, he's the first ever SNP leader on this podcast, and I found what he said really interesting. I thought that the way he's trying to reach out to English people, saying there's no space for anti-English sentiment at the SNP, really quite compelling. I wonder what you think. Please do get in touch. Please email us, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk, or tweet me. I'm at chopperspodcast. Thank you to my guest this week, Ian Blackford MP, and to my producers, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampett, Giles Gear, and Theo Luludis. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. I'll be back later this week for your usual Friday morning episode. If you can't wait till then and want more Chopper in your life, and if not, why not? Please do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter for more Westminster Whispers sent directly to your email inbox every weekday. And of course, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph if you can. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio! 